Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, COVID, crisis management, anything that's relatable to those topics, and anything that helps you, your organization, or your community plan for and respond to adverse situations. If there is a topic you'd like us to talk about on the show, please feel free to reach me through LinkedIn um, or leave a comment on uh, YouTube. Uh, and on Voice America, there is a button underneath the show graphic on the, the webpage that sends an email to me. I get notified always and I respond to everything. We'll see about getting you on the show or we'll see if we can find someone to come on the show and talk about what you want us to touch on. Longtime listeners and uh, viewers on YouTube, you'll know that I was a presenter at the Business Continuity Institute's Virtual World Conference uh, this year in November 2020. And at the time, I said I'd hope to be able to get a couple of speakers to come on the show. Today is one of those days. I'm lucky enough to have the presenter of Future Proof Business Continuity Audits, Mark Fennick. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm... I am an auditor and a consultant by profession, and I was also speaking at the BCI World Conference in November with the title Alex mentioned, and I've also been a speaker at Eurocax 2020, that's the ISACA flagship IT auditing conference, the European conference, and I've spent a number of years in recently in IT auditing, and before that I was a business continuity manager for about eight years. And even before that, I, I have a technical background. I was into programming networks and I am coming from the IT side of auditing. If it is IT auditing, that is my my side. Back to you, Alex. Well, it's good to have someone to come on and talk about auditing who's got the background in the industry they're actually auditing. <laughs> so you know, I, I've run into experiences where you know, I'm being audited by somebody who has exactly no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, obviously, today, audit, um, uh, sometimes it's considered a, a bad word <laughs> you know, by many people. Uh, I don't think it's so bad myself, you know. Um, but can you clarify for us, what is audit? What it, What is it really meant to do? Yes, uh, we'll clarify the bad word you mentioned first. I think that depends on the approach. But I'll come back to, to that in a, in a minute. Auditing, let me start with the what is auditing question. Auditing, uh, I see that as a three-party relationship. You have the interested party, the user, who wants assurance on something that someone else is doing, that someone else we, may, we normally refer to as the accountable party. So you might have board of directors who want assurance on what management is doing. And the third party is, of course, the auditor. That's where the auditor comes in and how an audit uh, takes place. 
It could be a regulator who wants assurance or wants a clarification on some organization. And again, you have two parties there, the regulator and the organization, and you might have the third party, the auditor, who comes in to provide assurance on how something is done. Now, back to the question where you mentioned that audit might be seen as sometimes something bad. I do not see that to be at least correct from my perspective. Of course, I'm an auditor and I am biased there. <laughs> really. There is, there was another, I'm copying this from another speaker. He said, there are three universal lies. The second one is, I'm an auditor, I'm here to help you. The, the third lie is, I'm a manager here, I'm in control. So it goes <laughs> both on management and on auditors. That's a little bit on the lighter side of things. However, I think the first lie, I have to mention it, it's the check is in the post. The, my perception or my views on why people see auditing as a bad thing is all, is all about the way the auditor approaches the assignment. Unfortunately, I've known other auditors, for example, who exaggerate risks so that they can then negotiate downwards and get their points through which that tarnishes their reputation. Normally, if you're doing an audit, you have clear benchmarks, clear objectives. We're auditing against the standard, against a regulation or a, some other kind of benchmark, a framework. If you're auditing against that, you have it black and white. It's a scientific, not an opinion, almost not, not an opinion anymore. It's a scientific thing that you have. This, the standard says this, but management is doing this or not doing this. And it is black and white explaining the risks clearly of not doing that. And maybe we can talk also later, there'll be some bias on how people perceive risks, but uh, we, we can explore that uh, as well if you want, Alex. But if you explain this clearly, then I think there is there will be agreement among the three parties mentioned, the user, the accountable party and the auditor, and there will be alignment and auditing is not seen, at least not such a bad thing after all. And an auditor can actually highlight risks. He's giving an outsider's opinion that an area is healthy or needs some kind of improvement. Uh, it's interesting. You touched on the, the point of uh, an auditor sometimes uh, uh, the, the, the difference, you know, auditing against standard. So you have a set, you know, this is what, I need um, validation or some sort of proof that you meet these list of criteria with audits that sometimes just come along with their own perceptions. And because um, uh, it was a question I was going to ask you, they're, that they're telling you how to do their job. Is that the role of audit to tell people how to do their job or hold their feet to the fire that they're doing what they say they're doing? Yes, this, this lies on, on what I what I call management assertions. Before starting an audit, previously we just mentioned we're auditing against a standard. But if management is not or is upright stating we're not adhering to the standard, we're adhering to another standard, or there's no need, for example, to have a mature process in that area. The business continuity, this is, there's no need to have, there are process maturity models in, uh, there's ISO, I believe 33,000, and there are, I hail from Izaka. They have the process assessment models. Mm -hmm. 
if management is not aiming to keep a process at a very high maturity level, maybe it's not so important for the organization. Organizations differ, and you cannot keep all processes at the highest maturity level. That's just expensive and waste of resources. You need to focus on your core processes. Security is probably a core process. Business continuity might be a core process for an organization, and perhaps someone else will have projects as well as a core process. But then for, some, for another different organization, the core processes are different. And if management upfront states, the process you're going to audit is not an important process, or at least it's in the middle ranges, then if you're going to audit against the middle range of process maturity, then you should get you should still be able to get that agreements among the, the parties we mentioned. I'm, I'm not sure that answered the question, Alex. No, that that's or that's good because I, you know, I I come I've been in you know very large you know organizations that have audit, and uh, a lot of times when that word pops up, oh, our project or program is going to be audited you can just see the looks of fear <laughs> that suddenly appear on people's faces. Like, Oh my God, you know, audits coming. You know, and if I, if I may share, if I may share one experience I had, I remember once they were doing an audit and there was this, uh, this she was a young lady and she had, and it was a spreadsheet with all the details she wanted. But there was one line that we saw it, which she said someone did not submit her the invoice. For me as an auditor, that was in control. She knew that there was a missing invoice and she was chasing some supplier to give it. The moment that she realized that we saw that she had a comment, we're missing an invoice, well, I have to call the supplier to give me that invoice, she panicked. And she actually went then to her manager after we left, she went to her manager, she, she told him that the auditors have seen this and it is wrong, she thought it was wrong. And I had the, her manager called me to come turn around, go back and explain to her that for us, the process is in place and that she need not worry. There is something missing. There is an invoice that is missing. It was like an invoice for some work done in the past week. It wasn't missing for six months. The work was done in the past week and they hadn't sent her the invoice. She had a note and she was following it up. She had it duly written down and she, it, it wasn't lost or anything. She was following it up. But because, just because the auditors saw that, she panicked. And unfortunately, sometimes there is this kind of perception. But for me, I repeat this, because she had it in control, the process was in place, she should not have worried at all in, in that situation. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I've seen the same thing happen. You know, people just flip out and they start to have meetings over this one little thing that an auditor saw or found or, you know, and it can balloon, um, you know, uh, into something bigger than actually what it's meant to be. But that has, uh, that's got me thinking about um, when an auditor uh, finds something or sees something. Is there a difference between a recommendation and an observation? The reason I'm asking is recommend a lot of times people um, will take what's in an audit report as I've got to change everything I'm doing to meet what they just said. And that's not always the case. No, exactly. In fact, there, there is a difference and normally even recommendations. Uh, let me start from the beginning. 
Normally, we start off with uh, observing something. We carry out the audit. Normally, you do walkthroughs, you observe people working, you review documentation, and you might have an observation remarking something. Now, if that something is, it can be improved, by all means, it should be highlighted that it, there's an area that can, be, that can be improved. However, there are different, we call, I call them priorities, that in some cases, something that is trivial can be highlighted to management. Maybe this can be done better or more efficient way, but the gains are marginal. So you don't really need to escalating. We mentioned the three parties in the, in the beginning. You can highlight it to management and there is no need to mention it to the, to the user, to the, to the third party who has tasked you with doing the assurance assignment. Of course, then there are other issues that need to be highlighted there. And that is where recommendations will come in place, as or at least the focus will be, uh, if you're producing a report, the focus will be the recommendations. Now, in, uh, it depends also on the situation. In some cases, the way an auditor can limit his work, it depends on the type of assignment, to highlight the risk. If someone is not doing something, if someone, uh, we're talking business continuity, if someone is not building the solutions of business continuity and a proper BIA, for example, that is a major issue because there might be ways, there might be hidden risks there that one needs to bring to, to the surface. In this case, of course, we highlight the risk and the recommendation will go one-to-one -one with the risk. But it is not ultimately even up to management to agree, at least with the recommendation, and sometimes management even might come up with a better solution. As an auditor, I would say, I would recommend that you do you build your business solution, continuity solutions on the BIA. But, uh, or I might say, carry out a BIA in the first place. But management might say, listen, we've done something similar and we can use that. And it might be even more, uh, more efficient in that, in that regard. Does that also uh, map back to what you mentioned earlier about, you know, if you're being uh, audited against a standard, uh, for example, that, you know, you have to, if you, if you are, uh, you know, auditing against standard, you've got to point out uh, and identify the gaps. You know, section 2.1 of this standard says to do X, Y, Z, and we can't find any evidence of that in your organization. So, mm -hmm. you know, either there, there's a, an audit ticket or whatever, whatever you call it, you know, uh, an observation that we can't find it, or, you know, is there an alternate process? You know, how do you, how do you address that then? Um, yes, and normally in, in that case, if it is missing, then one needs to assess the risk, how, how high it is. Because sometimes if the standard says you need to document something, perhaps it's not, it is there, people are following the process, but it is not formally, a document is not formally approved. And you get the feeling that uh, people know that whatever document is in that area, in a particular area, for example, it is the one to complete, but there are no sign-offs, for example, and everyone is following. When you do them uh, substantive testing, you get deeper, you realize that it is true that you first you get the feeling that everyone is following the document. Then, of course, you do the tests to confirm that. And you realize that it is true that people are following that document. 
In that case, of course, the you need to allow, the process is not perhaps very mature, it's a little bit less mature, but nonetheless, you highlight the risk, you highlight that gap, depending on the on the severity of, of the risk that the gap gives rise to. Okay. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Mark Fennick today and his BCI Virtual World presentation, Future Proof Business Continuity Audits. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Flick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. We are talking with Mark Fennick today and his BCI Virtual World Conference, Future Proof Business Continuity Audits. Mark, lots of great information. I have a question regarding third-party applications. A lot of business continuity professionals and organizations, they use um, different software that's out there you know, from different vendors. How do you go about auditing that information because it's different if I'm using a third-party application for my BIAs and BCPs than having a Word document or spreadsheets, which are you know easier to look at. Is there a difference in approach in that? Um, yes, the if you want to audit a system, it's just it depends on again the objectives that you want to assurance on. In this case, most probably. As an IT auditor, I'll start looking at the, the, what I call the information criteria and derived from ISACA, the information enablers. Nowadays, they call them the information goals. And one, some of these objectives, for example, will be that your BIA, you must protect that from unauthorized disclosure. So in a way, it's having the BIA documents perhaps organization secrets, uh, if I mean that word, inside a system, it's probably going to be much better controlled than Word documents, which can go email and running around, uh, laying around for unauthorized eyes to, to see. And that, that is the objective of confidentiality. So it changes from, if you're going to audit from that information perspective, Security has confidentiality, preserving the integrity of data, and being available to whoever needs it. Those are the three, the trial for information security. If we're going to audit uh, a system, the information on this system, 
the focus being on the information and the information on a Word document, it wouldn't really change anything from term, in terms of objectives. Of course, it will change the approach because then the way you audit access rights will be different. The way you audit how uh, people make changes, how to track changes to some, if it's a Word document, it's one way. If it's a change within the system, it's being done in a different manner. So it does change the, the approach. You also have then other goals for information, which for example, relates to accuracy, to be information being complete, which in that case, I don't believe at least right, right now, right here, right now, I don't believe it changes much because that depends on whoever is providing the input. So you can have the most secure system, but if you give the key to someone who can input the wrong data, he can input the wrong data and that's it. So accuracy of data will be lost. So that is the way that changes from a Word document. I wouldn't say it changes It changes much. Which one do you prefer? Auditing I, Word, do uh, Word documents or applications? <laughs> I would prefer a system that's controlled. <laughs> okay. <laughs> with, with logging and you can know who made changes and access rights is much better. Yeah, yeah. You could. Usually it's all traceable, you know, much e easily uh, traceable. Oh, here's the date and time and the you know, stamps that go with it and verification codes and everything. Oh, great, here we go. You know. yeah. Now, at your presentation, you, um, uh, for how do I put this? You kind of uh, told stories, you know, uh, about building the need to make audit work. Can you kind of give us one of those stories, you know, and, and walk us through some of that? Yes, the analogy I started with uh, to put this this concept into perspective for for the audience was that I compare the need to make our work persist more over time, meaning that if I have one hour's worth of work, I need to invest it wisely. And to make that the effort put in that one hour persist more over time, I use the analogy of helping a child build a tower. And there is the saying that as parents, it's not what we do for our children, but what we teach them to do for themselves. So if a child is building a tower, you can always be there. It's going to topple to the left, you put in some building blocks, you fix it, then it's going to topple to the right, you need to be there again, and you need to be always there, all right? As parents, you will want to be there for your children. But this is about teaching them how to do and how to solve problems on their own. So the different approach is rather than helping the child build the tower all the time, every time she's building a tower, you teach the child what kind of building blocks to use. Start off from a wider base and it narrows towards the top. You teach the techniques to this child so that then they can build all the towers they want. And you step back and watch the child work on her own. And this applies to recommendations that auditors can make, especially in the business continuity domain. So sometimes it's not, it's not necessarily an audit. It could be there is an incident, for example, in an organization, and an auditor is, there is a post-mortem, and an auditor is asked to provide an opinion on a specific incident. And the one can go about, let, let's keep this simple and say, all right, in this case, there should have been a, a second server, which was not there. So when the primary server failed, 
there was nothing to fall, fall back onto. And the immediate problem, the immediate risk is, all right, let's put a secondary server on that for that system and we're done. That is, and that is human nature. There are factors and uh, human psychology that pushes us to address this kind of immediate problem. However, as an auditor and even management should, uh, should can benefit from this. If we resist that impulse to address the immediate problem, this is like the tower, the Chinese building is falling and we fix it. We resist that impulse, we step back and instead we see what is required across the organization so that management could have prevented this from happening. So what kind of building blocks can we create starting off from a wider base maybe, bringing back the analogy, so that management will address this problem before even it happens. And in, in my talk at the BCI World Conference, then I mentioned the components, for example, of a management system, business continuity management system. It is not just, it goes beyond having a, the incident where we, we require an alternate server and we fix that kind of problem. We're looking at the management system now, so that in a formal manner, for example, uh, all right, let's go back to the immediate problem for, for a second. And the recommendation, the auditor's opinion, is to have the second server. But then one might realize, all right, that's the application server. We now have a database server that's also, it's a single point of failure because it does not have a secondary equipment, secondary alternatives, or there could be the network link as well. It's a single link, single point of failure again. So if there is the management system looking at business continuity, that can identify the single point of failures before a failure actually happens. If we push our recommendations in that, towards that direction, then it is more likely that the, our recommendations and the efforts we put in, into, this, into this domain will persist more over time. A, a couple of questions. You mentioned um, uh, when there's been an incident and audit, you know, identifies, you know, that uh, maybe uh, another server should have been placed. I'm simplifying it, but are, what's your thoughts on uh, after action reports or lessons learned from projects? Should audit be involved with those? Yes, definitely. I believe auditors can have a wider view of things across the organization, especially internal auditors, and they can link even sometimes efforts from one area to some other area or risk in one area, how it can affect another risk in another area or solution. They have the wider view. And sometimes if you have, uh, for example, someone who is looking, a management who's looking into a single area, he might be working on his own. He might be building a highly, a highly for example, resilient system that then depends on a lower resilient, uh, less resilient infrastructure. Then this is like, in a way, in business continuity, it's like keeping your horses in a chariot in line. If you have a process or you have an organization that where you have different, different areas pushing business continuity to different maturity, that will lead to inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. So it's better to have someone who have a wider view. Now, I may be giving too much merit to auditors here because I mentioned that auditor will have the wider view. Of course, if it's a business continuity manager, 
he will also have the same view, the wide view of an organization in terms of business continuity. So it's so the the main point is to have someone with a wide view there rather than having an auditor because he's an auditor, of course. That that's interesting that um, uh, you you said that the wider view. Um, it's if you have audit involved or, or, or something like that to see this wider view during lessons learned or uh, incidents, you know, after projects have been implemented type thing. You as an auditor might be positioned to be able to connect the dots that people can't see, like this incident that you experienced is a result of this outstanding item that you knew nothing about over here. You know, mm -hmm. you've got that wider view to be able to pull some of these pieces together. So instead of people working separately, as, as you said, uh, audit can say, hey, you two need to talk because you're going in different directions and causing your own problems. Mm -hmm. so, so then there will be instances for example, where security, IT security, needs to retain when responding to a business continuity incident, and there will, it might uh, it might not always be the case. Someone might say when responding to an incident, operations takes priority over security, but it could be just his view, and someone else will have no a different view, balancing a different uh, balance between operations and security. You also mentioned um, uh, you were talking about your know, processes and IT. Is there a different audit for IT versus business processes, or is, are they linked? You know, a, the same approach, just done. You know, a little bit differently. Um, the yes, the the ISO thirty three thousand. It's a generic standard and can can be adopted for IT processes. However, definitely the, when you get into the details, it will be different. Uh, especially if, uh, if I may give some examples, the IT, process, IT processes will, will connect and will support business processes. But furthermore, there will be then IT processes that affect other IT processes. Just uh, if I may mention one example, for example, there, there is a change management process within an organization it's not about organizational change. This is changing IT configuration. For example, you want to add the firewall rule. How does it get, who, who can request such a thing? Can a user request, a common user request someone to open a port on a firewall? Or it might, must it be a specific department from within IT who raises this kind of request in response perhaps to some other project that uh, they're working on? Uh, who can approve it? Who can then implement it? there will be these change management process to change a configuration item in the IT infrastructure. Now, this can link also to business continuity and cyber weaknesses, because if this process, this change management process is not done properly, there might be someone who introduces changes that along the trail, they will affect other processes and perhaps cause a disruption, which might, might eventually become a business continuity incident. So the way they are linked, you need to think a little bit more on the interaction between uh, processes of your auditing an IT process. How do you audit something like change management? Because that's, uh, I've been a change manager and it's sometimes it's not the easiest thing to, uh, to manage because there can be so many people involved, uh, you know, and, and different processes involved and, 
and IT uh, interfaces and different you know, concepts uh, that take place. How can you possibly um, audit uh, anything that complex? Yeah, the trick is the simple trick to break it down. There are even when we talk about change management, sometimes at least I can think of two or three different areas one can think. There is organizational change, change enablement, where you prepare people for the change. You instigate the need to change. It's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Then there is change management when you're transitioning the organization from one state to another. You're building a project and the product of the project will cause the organization to start doing something differently. It's not just an IT project. You're also changing the business processes surrounding that system. So if you're building a, an IT project, that is a change in itself. That's the, one of the major, it's a big change. That's, and a, that's different from the change enablement or related to culture. And then there are, of course, changes to the configuration items we mentioned. It could be, for example, uh, in, the, in the third part, we mentioned the firewall rules. But it could be you have an image when you're deploying computers, desktop computers or a server, and these, these are deployed using a standard configuration. And there needs to be a, ch a change. Normally, it will be an image. There will be a change in that image. Someone wants to change the anti-malware software, or it, it could be an upgrade. How does one go about changing that? And it is breaking down into at least these three different areas, and then further breaking down and scoping the audit to into a manageable part of the within these areas. That's how I would go about it. And, and making sure that all the right stakeholders are, are uh, identified, you know, uh, along the way, so that um, to your point, everyone gets identified. You know, so if they have a major change or impact to their area or smaller impact, and then relating that to if something goes wrong, is there a uh, a contingency strategy or, or manual workaround or something, you know, mm -hmm. to, to help in response in case something goes completely out the window. Normally, it depends on which area we're talking about. Normally, it will be a rollback. Nowadays, going back to manual is not really very much on the table anymore. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it's it'd rather wait for IT to restore the service than try to do it manually because it will cause more problems than... And especially if IT is well prepared and the business continuity processes are well in place, knowing that the disruption is not going to last long, it's, most will prefer to wait. With regard to knowing the, what can go wrong, and there will be the change management process will have different stages. Um, for example, there is one of the stages is testing. Testing and doing, perhaps prior to that, doing some sort of impact analysis or risk assessment. And it needs to be documented and someone has taken accountability for doing it and saying, yes, this change makes sense or no, this change will affect something somewhere else. And we need to analyze more the business continuity implications of this change, for example. But along the whole process, so someone requested the change, someone did the risk, uh, risk assessment of this, this change and the impact analysis, how it's going to affect other areas. Someone perhaps started the development, testing. Uh, someone approved that the testing is, is fine and then eventually go to deployment. And there is even post-deployment maintenance, perhaps, if it's a project. 
all these stages, there needs to be someone who is accountable and said, listen, I am fine with this. I've done my testing. I'm confident that this is going to be uh, okay. So if it is something there is something some, you can trace back, or if you might find some, you go to a production system and you find some executable that shouldn't be there, for example, or it's unaccounted for. You, you should you should never that should never happen. You should always be able to trace back into to, to the change management process and identify who has actually deployed that based on who gave the go ahead after testing, and you trace all the way back to why that executable is on a production system. And that's one of the benefits of audit because audit would be able to find uh, where that break was, right? And, and, and find chain. Uh, here's where something went wrong. Yeah, because if you're doing an audit, you get a sample of, it could be executables, it could be changes, some parameters, uh, it could be anything. And if you can trace back, uh, an auditor can trace back who authorized that change, then of course, that gives a certain level of comfort that it is being done in a proper manner. But if you have, and if you discover that, that you cannot trace back during an audit, you're in time, of course, to fix it. But if you there is a cyber breach and you discover that during a cyber breach that there are half a dozen changes that cannot be traced back, you wouldn't know then who which are the changes done by the malicious attacker or which were done by with good intent but were not documented in the change management process. And that's that's why an auditor should identify these before a cyber breach, for example, occurs. Well, that never happens. Changes made where uh, you know <laughs> it's not documented. That never happens. <laughs> Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. I see it a lot. Yes, 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 yes. And it depends. Also, one needs to identify what changes at least should be documented. Because if you're going to change access rights for a user, do you need to trace all the way for that, or it's something trivial? It depends on what organization we're talking about as well but at, at the very minimum it should be a decision we want to go to have these type of changes go through a change management process but these kind of changes are not important to us we don't need to go through but at least someone made a decision it's not just because we've always done it that way hmm. and on that note we've come to the end of our second segment we are talking with mark fennick today and his bci virtual world topic future-proof business continuity audits. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Flick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are 
listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Mark Fennick and his BCI Virtual World Conference topic, Future-Proof Business Continuity Audits. Lots of great information, Mark. I hope people are really paying attention to uh, how audit can help them. In this last little bit, I'd like to ask, how can we prepare for an audit, especially the business continuity uh, profession? How do we prepare for an audit? If we know we're going to get audited, what kind of things should we do in our daily jobs you know, and our roles so that when we do get audited, we are proactively prepared rather than you know always responding yeah my short answer to that is that embed good practices within your daily procedures so that you don't have to prepare for the audit this uh, if, if i may elaborate on this a little bit more i would say the all this will start from having clearly defined objectives of course, business continuity objectives are to keep manage disruptions in the proper manner. Now, it could have such an objective, can have sub-objectives, of course. For example, let's stick to a business continuity standard or good practice guidelines that uh, of, of the BCI. And one can then look at what risks are we experiencing not business continuity risks now, what risks are we experiencing that can hinder us from following the good practice guidelines? Lack of staff, lack of, uh, or not the right attitude, not the right culture, the policies are not well polished. What, what is hindering us from achieving our objectives or our sub-objectives? So it's not necessarily, I'm not talking about business continuity objectives. I'm talking about following the objective to follow the good practice guidelines, and what risks are hindering us from achieving that. And then the next step, so of objectives and their risks that hinder us from achieving those objectives. And then there will be what auditors will call controls. Management might call, what are we doing to manage those risks? Might not necessarily be using the term controls. So we have, we mentioned lack of staff, lack of skills perhaps, what are we doing to to address that problem. We might have, this is our organizational chart at the moment, this is what we want, and we are going to recruit more people or we're going to engage external consultants. And management will start working towards closing those gaps before an auditor highlights them. And if you do this day in, day out, year after year, of course, eventually the gaps will be reduced to pretty much at zero. <laughs> And of course, there's no need then for you. <laughs> we, were, we were talking during the intermission that you had zero tickets in, the, uh, in your audits, uh, Alex. The, the result will be then that you don't really need to prepare for that audit because the gaps have been addressed and the auditor will find that you're following or at least the direction you are taking is the right direction to properly manage the risks within that domain. How, if I know I'm getting audited, what kind of information do I, I, do I need to provide? And, you know, do I need to provide a BCP? Do I need to provide evidence of a meeting? 
you know, uh, uh, minutes, you know, I, I think some of that information is what some people, you know, um, freak out over, you know, like, oh my God, I got to find all this information. So what kind of information do you actually look for? And what, what kind of things should I make sure I'm doing? Yes, there is, there is the saying that we say, don't tell me, show me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what we're, we're looking after. Now, if we are going to audit, let's say we're going to audit against the good practice guidelines, which have the cycle, the, the policies, the culture, and then there is the technical practices, the four technical practices for, for business continuity. If we're going to audit against that, we'll need evidence that these stages have been gone through, have been done, duly done, and of course, documented at all stages. Now, some might say we've done them, but why do we need documentation? It's not just, documentation is not just for the auditor. Documentation for me represents agreements among the stakeholders. You don't want to be in a crisis situation. Everyone agreed that during, the, if this happens, we're going to go north. This is the solution we're going to pursue. And then someone else says, no, but not today. Today I want to go south. And you start getting arguments without documentation. You start getting arguments because in a crisis situation, in a moment where you want to move fast. So documentation is not just for the auditor. Documentation shows that there is agreement. And if people put this in a document, it means that they are aligned and their thinking is aligned, that they need to go in a specific direction. Now, if we take just one, uh, we pick up the analysis stage, it's at the BIA. What can arguments can arise due, uh, if the BIA is not duly documented? We think that this is our important system, but then during uh, a crisis, someone says, uh, no, but this other system is much more important. And he start arguing in that manner. Or perhaps you might discover, because BIA also highlights dependencies. You discover that this is your important system, and, but then you realize that it depends on something else that no one thought of. And you don't have that the solutions are built on a fluid word of mouth BIA, which can lead to, to gaps. I guess documentation also helps too when there's a change. You know, if you've got a meeting and the meeting had decisions made and certain topics addressed and you have to have the minutes put together that lists these are the decisions that were made. And then three months later, somebody moves to a different position. If there's no documentation, there isn't any record of a decision. And then you end up in that situation that you just brought up where people want to go north and some want to go south. And there's nothing that says, no, this is what we decided. Exactly, exactly. And one, if I made another thing, even when we're talking about scenarios, how to handle scenarios, one of my uh, ideas on this is that you don't need to document all the possible thousands and thousands of scenarios. You just need to have, it depends on the organization, of course, but let's say you might need just half a dozen carefully selected scenarios. Whatever happens, it's not going to be what you have exactly like one of the scenarios you have documented. But it will be sufficiently similar to help people move fast in a crisis situation. Mm -hmm. We only have uh, about four minutes left. So can you take two minutes with final, any final thoughts uh, on uh, you know, uh, auditing uh, BC, BCM and any advice for BCM professionals? 
Yes, if I may, my uh, first uh, advice will be to resist the impulse to address the immediate problem. If we have the missing server, this was not done. It's not just highlighting that. We need to step back and say, what gave rise to this in the first place? And what techniques can we use? We mentioned process maturity. There are other control frameworks. Uh, there is using the work of experts will help, of course, uh, as well. And what techniques and what mechanisms can we put and work in with direct our recommendations so that management, and this is a question I ask myself, how could have management avoided this without an audit taking place? So my, my advice is to put our recommendations in the direction that next time around, management would be able to avoid the situation without an audit taking place. So rather than directing our recommendations into the granular specifics, we, we push recommendations toward the wider, wider um, base of the organization so that whatever recommendation we do will persist more across time over uh, throughout the whole organization. I, I like what you said there about, you know, um, uh, when there's a recommendation, you know, uh, trying to fix it immediately because sometimes maybe uh, they had to accept a risk for a little while because they they would only, if they purchased this new server, they'd only be using it for three months because there's a project being implemented that replaces this whole infrastructure or, or, or system or configuration, you know, and just so happened, something happened in this little you know, window where they had to accept that risk. So it's interesting that you you kind of alluded to that you know, that, you know, it occurred maybe because something else is happening. And so don't just go out and buy a new server that you're only going to use for two months. Exactly. That could be buy a new server against do a proper BIA, for example, something bigger. Just yeah. Always try to go for the big recommendation. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, you've given a lot of uh, good information. You made audit seem like a friend. You know, because <laughs> I know, you know, too many people get nervous when they see audit, you know, but, you know, you made audit a friend and they, there's a lot that audit can do to help us, you know, you know, in business continuity and in other areas. So, Mark, thank you for sharing your expertise and time with us today. I think uh, it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure being here with you, Alex, and hope to see you again soon. Uh, hopefully, uh, maybe BCI in person next year. Who knows? You know, fingers crossed, or later this year, I should say now. <laughs> fingers yes, crossed. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks again, Mark, for your time. And to everybody listening and watching, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.